try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. Total Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. Protonic Reversal. With your host, Kalin Neutron. Broadcasting from a secret underground lair in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A gigantic middle finger to everything that is rocking about music, rock and roll, and corporate power. The thing is, though... If you don't laugh, you're going to go on a killing spree with sharp and nails. Confidence of a hero or a fool, I wasn't exactly certain which. Could not be more professional. It's a real one, I choose to go my life too. That's okay. It means something, it means something. That's like a science thing, right? Indeed, indeed, indeed. It is a science thing. It is a science place. It is a scientific fact that we are all up in your face. It's time once again for the one, the only, Protonic Reversal. Welcome to it, welcome to it, welcome to it. Sunday Quarantimes edition of Protonic. I am your host, Conan Neutron. I am a rock and roll lifer who has toured and recorded for over 22 years. Most known for the band Conan Neutron and the Secret Friends. Music is a huge part of my life, and I use the format of this long-running podcast to talk about music with musicians whose work I enjoy and respect. Folks that may or may not be household names, but do something very special. This is episode 271. If this is your first time listening to the show, all the archives are protonicreversal.com and are always free. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding. If you'd like to support the show, and get episodes sooner, you can give $1 a month to patreon.com slash protonicreversal. And if you like the show, or even just a single episode, please feel free to share it along, like, subscribe, or post a review. All that helps people find the show, and it's just a darn nice thing to do. And Joe Carducci, talking to a man, a great man, a very interesting man, part of an interesting time in history who continues to make great art, and from a state that is very mysterious for a lot of people these days. And additionally, mysterious is how uh, the phone connections can maybe not be reliable. <laughs> Mr. Joe Carducci, yeah. how are you doing, sir? Pretty good, Conan. Thanks for calling. Yeah, uh, it's it's awesome to it's awesome to hear from you. Uh, and of course, for the <clears throat> listeners who would not be aware of that, uh, Wyoming, a, a very vast and and, and wide land. But you don't have necessarily the infrastructure that you have for like major cities. Uh, you're more prone to events, weather events, things along those lines. Would that, would that be? On? Yeah, yeah. This, you know, I had to re re uh, run the phone line from the telephone company box to the phone, and uh, I used to have it <clears throat> up on the roof. So this, you know, a couple of days ago, uh, I drilled holes uh, and got it into the house right away. And so it runs, you know, through my rooms to get to where the phone is. And it's a landline, and I'm old-fashioned, and that's, you know, the way it goes. Well, I will say this. Doing a show like this, you, you almost grow really to appreciate when folks do have landlines because there is sort of a binary aspect to it that it's either, it's generally either working or it's not, rather than the, you know, the sound that is yeah, right. people turning to robots. I don't know how uh, the BBC and... <laughs> You know, some of these uh, call-in shows 
deal with, you know, one bad uh, cell connection after another. I mean, it gets it can be a disaster on some of those live radio shows. Oh, I'm sure it gives anyone who's producing it, uh, you know, nightmares (laughs) to to put it bluntly. It's 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 rough business, to say the least. Uh, But you're with us now. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I think it's it's very telling that. It's it, it, you're a hard dude to introduce because you've done you've done so much stuff and so much of it's so important, but let's actually start start with the new stuff. Let, let's let's start with the with, with these new writings. You, you've got you've got a new book. It's uh, it's awesome. Uh, I haven't read the whole thing, but uh, the through uh, the Night Heron Bookshop, Night Heron Books, and mm-hmm. uh, can you just tell us a little bit about because it's it's kind of. It, it, I, I'm not sure what exactly I expected, but it's a little bit different than I expected. Can you give us a little bit of a background for it, the locations, all that? Well, sure. I mean, I I grew up in uh, Naperville, Illinois, and I was, you know, I, I was born in 1955, so I was listening to Top 40 radio, you know, almost all through the 60s, and, um, you know, loved garage rock uh loved the british invasion loved you know early hard rock um but you know uh, probably my third year of high school i just sort of turned on to uh movies and mm-hmm. sure and i had nothing uh you know i had no real ambition before that i wasn't a good student but i was capable occasionally of writing and um you know, as I got interested in uh, feature film and, uh, and, you know, originally probably I was interested in old Hollywood, you know, like 30s gangster movies and horror movies and uh, the European uh, contemporary art cinema, you know, like Bergman and, mm-hmm. yeah, of course. <clears throat> and Godard and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, you're watching it at the time. They had one movie a week on public television. Then I got a driver's license. I could go to the art houses that were, you know, near Chicago. And and I focused on uh, screenwriting, you know, pretty quickly as the thing you could do, you know. I, I never really, I've owned some cameras, but I, I never used them, <laughs> you know. Right. Some people yeah, different skill start set. <laughs> shooting film the minute they're interested in movies. I always thought to, you know, that writing was the element I could uh, specialize in. But, you know, when I got out, uh, I quit college and moved to Hollywood in 76. And, uh, you know, I was only 21. I really couldn't write a good screenplay yet. Um, And punk rock was, you know, starting. And uh, I heard the Ramones on... KROQ, and I heard the Sex Pistols on K-West, you know, the import show, and uh, L.A. I bought the first um, issue of Slash while I was in uh, L.A., and that was in uh, probably early 77 when that came out. I didn't know any of them. I, I rarely, you know, I lived right off the boulevard, and I I know that uh, the mask was there, right? <laughs> and uh, sure, you know uh, Bruce, who did No Mag, and the Slash people were around. But I, I really, I didn't. I worked at a movie theater, you know, on the boulevard, and 
and uh, read and wrote, you know, when I or went to free movies. I mean, that was the one perk uh, there. <clears throat> and after a year, I moved up to Portland, and that's really where I got into the music business because you could just walk into it and want to do it. And so that the bands that were in Portland at the time were the Neil Boys and the Wipers. And, yeah, Wipers, uh, yeah. Um, those are the those are the two that really became known. Uh, I had a show on KBU, which was a Pacifica radio station, and we had a connection. You know, I worked at an import record store that had a connection to Rough Trade, which at the time was just a reggae shop run by some you know white radicals, basically political radicals, and um, you know, and then the independent label thing just sort of. Uh, pulled uh, both of us. Uh, we were called Renaissance Records and and right. and Rough Trade over there, and we connected and began began to import from them and uh, carry, you know, some early American records, you know, that came out like the Wipers, like uh, Monitor, like um, Germs, and um, all the Danger House forty fives. And uh, and built it, moved it down to Berkeley, changed the name to Systematic. I wound up at SST because I thought I wanted to get back to L.A., and uh, they were the most interesting, um, you know, label that we were buying records from, and uh, Black Flag was just, you know, just um, on another level, and uh, their dedication and touring meant, meant that, you know, any time you spent with them probably would be worth it something would happen <laughs> something yeah something would be eventful and that was right when if i remember correctly that's des was sort of exiting from being the vocalist and henry was kind of being enlisted if i remember correctly uh, around that era right yeah yeah i i went to um i was visiting uh family in in naperville and they were you know on their way back um and they played chicago and they and henry was traveling with them I didn't know him. I did. I did. I really had talked to uh, Greg and Chuck, mostly ordering records on the phone, and I'd uh, <clears throat> I'd met them once in their van. So that was the whole troop. You know, uh, uh, this is you know their lineup circa '81, and brought them down to Systematic, and uh, and. Uh, so they could see what we were doing, what what kind of place it was. Basically, it was a two-man office, the owner and me, and then eventually uh, Joe Pope, who was in the band Angst, uh, was working for us and ended up being the, you know, the owner after I left and, and uh, Peter gave it to him. And uh, But we, you know, talking to Chuck before I really knew him, you know, I asked him, hey, you know, have you, I just, you know, I asked him if he'd heard the Dicks 45, and um, and you know, is is he lit up right away because they they had been around the country already. They knew how good the Dicks were, and they knew sure, the record, yeah. and uh, and so you know, gave him the idea that I knew what was going on. <laughs> and uh, when they toured and they went into the local record store, um, you know, there really was only one per city that was buying from us and if you weren't buying from us in you know 81 uh 
from Systematic, you probably weren't carrying West Coast hardcore records, you know, because they immediately, you know, the adolescents, even the earlier stuff like the Avengers, that stuff just really started blowing out the doors, and um, other distributors eventually got into it, but Systematic was, you know, an important company that's sort of forgotten, you know, as, as things developed. And it's interesting to me, and one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on is because this this era, especially for the younger listeners, just might seem like it's from another planet, uh, let alone another time, because yeah. it's so different than it is now. Like now, we have you have the ability to, if not the promise of reaching people all over the world mm-hmm. with just a computer. Like it's, it's, you don't, yeah. you know, it's, it's yeah. not like, it's not certainly not guaranteed, but even the distribution of physical media, there was no avenue to do this. So this was, this was something you guys were basically had to create yeah. on your own. Well, you know, the, my, uh, you know, in my downtime uh, at Systematic in those, in that period, you would, um, you'd look at the enemy and you'd look at sounds and you'd look at uh, the fanzines uh, you know, <clears throat> slash flipside, um, disc discords, you know, um, New York rocker and, and, you know, plenty of others. I mean, more and more every year, every month, it seemed like, and you'd look, you'd read the reviews of records. And at the end of the review, typically there was a, an address and anything that sounded interesting, you'd write for a sample, you know, telling them, that Systematic uh, was a distributor uh, and a mail order company, and uh, you know we 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 ordered as little as twenty five, but as many as one hundred and fifty, two hundred, and we restocked. When something was good, we restocked it. Other distributors sort of they wanted something new if it fit into the genres they understood as sellable. And uh, they didn't really listen and, you know, make a judgment and push stuff, you know. And, and th- that kind of person tended to, you know, become either a Joy Division fan or, you know, they were really into 4AD or right, right. <laughs> really into Disc de Crepuscule, you know. All of this uh, styler uh you know, affectation, and, you know, you couldn't tell them, hey, there's this band that's not like anybody else, you know, and uh, they put out a 7-inch. Y- you could you could tell about 20 shops, buyers in, the, in America, and you'd get them to buy three or four of them, and, you know, it might be uh, Car Sickness, uh, a band from Pittsburgh, you know, I, I don't know if any of them went on to keep doing music or not, but, yeah. you know, we didn't really care about that at Systematic. We were, you know, we were music first, basically. Well, and it's almost, <laughs> it seemed almost like a pioneer mindset, right? That you you would explore new lands and, and find where, like, yeah. the friendly territory was. And I'd rarely call anybody yeah. uh, to bu- to order records. We We had to spend a lot of money calling record shops, and get the buyer on the line and, uh, you know, 
and and that was costly. Long distance was costly. It's another difference oh, <laughs> technologically. Re- <yeah. laughs> but uh, I caught the tail yeah, end of it, but you, I remember you, it well. You do it yeah. in the mail, <laughs> and then it would take a long time, you know, to get the sample, a long time to mail the order to the band, and then the band would ship the record. And, you know, the American stuff would come in one at a time. It might be from Glenn Danzig, it might be from Ian Mackay, it might be from SST, it might be from Frontier Records, uh, might be from Car Sickness, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and that stuff sort of collected, and every time we got a big shipment from Rough Trade, then that would trigger a round of calls. But, you know, first we, we unpacked and immediately started playing stuff so we could describe it. Sure. You know, you wouldn't have to describe Joy Division's new record to them, but you'd have to go through all this stuff like um, the film cast. You know, that's a great noise 45 from England that we got from Rough Trade. And, um, um, you know, there's even more obscure stuff that, you know, I've been selling some British stuff from that period, and uh, I think it was called Low Flying Aircraft. You oh know, right! The name yeah, wasn't yeah. even <laughs> it wasn't even on the record. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how I sold it, but we must have got you know twenty five or fifty of them. Well, it, and it's on you to have this lexicon to describe this to to be like the ambassador almost for for these bands and artists yeah. to for someone to know what. All right, what is it? What is it? I got you know you've got thirty seconds. Elevator pitch me. Okay, well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's mysterious. Well, we did, it yeah, we, like this, we, you, know? <laughs> you know, we um, we made as Rough Trade came into the country. Uh, as we moved to Berkeley, they moved to Berkeley also, and uh, took them a few months to set up longer than we did. So what we did was we did a push to add accounts, and we got into like a little bit less great record stores with you know less hip buyers. Um, but we split up the accounts then and gave them, you know, half the country's accounts, some good ones, some lesser accounts. And then, uh, we tried to keep that territorial agreement, you know, and, uh, but you know, things, you know, they, not just the technology, not just the music, all this stuff changed. And then the bigger companies, you know, got interested because, you know, Joy Division became New Order, and The Cure became The Cure, and, you know, the, a lot of the stuff that we started selling um, um, went through the roof, and, uh, you know, and so every every importer or distributor was carrying that stuff, and um, Systematic became known for, um, you know, uh, the West Coast uh, hardcore bands, I guess you would right. call them. But we had we've been carrying all that stuff with our other stuff from the beginning. You know, probably you'd say DOA or uh, or the Flesh Eaters or uh, um, and then uh, Black Flag and the Minutemen and um, and um, yeah, I don't know, middle class. You know, that's another thing we that that's considered the first hardcore record, I guess. Even though they're basically art rock people, but yeah, yeah, yeah and you had a whole it was a lot of fun, and right. uh, I did I did feel like I had my finger on the pulse, you know, for those four or five years at Systematic. And then when I got down to SST, I sort of, you know, that's a a big scene in a bigger city. Uh, But 
uh, I did kind of lose track of, uh, you know, what was coming out around the country. And it's it's so interesting to me because I just think about the fact that, you know, Rolling Stone was was massive, like massively influential. Like that was like the thing is also from previous generation. And uh, Jan like said some really nasty things about like he was not a punk rock fan at all. Like he was not like and, and this is so some people where they may have, you know, again, without the Internet as as we know it today had limited exposure to even knowing about what a thing is, having someone influential mm. like that basically talking trash. And, yeah. you, you know, yeah. that's, well, that's you, a challenge. You know, you're right, though, because it you couldn't do without Rolling Stone. So we, at Systematic, we solicited mail-order customers primarily through classified ads in Rolling Stone. And you would, you would do ads in... Um, Slash or Cream Magazine, even, and you wouldn't get any response. So the readership of Rolling Stone was a serious readership in terms of music, and you know you'd get twenty-five or fifty, uh, you know, requests for a, a catalog. When you explained to them you were offering these obscure imports and uh, you know American independent labels and um and none of that was written about in rolling stone and um i think you know it's a lesson in the power of editors and publishers that writers are way ahead of them and so even today if you're reading the straight newspapers um you know no one no one writes for the newspaper um unless they're willing to be rewritten by an editor who actually doesn't know what the reporter knows. And they may have been a reporter, but um, they are rewriting, you know, with the New York Times, it's it's with a political kind of refinement so that there's one voice the newspaper speaks in. And so you're you're cuckolded, you know, uh, right. and certainly yeah. at Rolling Stone, they had very hip writers who were not allowed really to, uh, you know, indulge their interest in the whole punk rock era, basically. Well, because you have the head of the whole enterprise basically telling them it's garbage, <laughs> you know, so it's, what are you going to yeah. do? Well, yeah, and, and you know, his real name is Jan. He changed it to Jan, you know, when he moved to New York. And uh, in New York, um, he became a publisher instead of a, a music guy. And so his taste was sort of frozen, you know, in the uh, early 70s when, of course, you know, everything was going great guns. Great music was on FM radio until 74. Then uh, FM radio gets formatted, sort of like uh, cross the country so that you know the same song is a hit everywhere on fm right right fm is now a commercial band not underground radio anymore and that becomes the superstars format and uh, platinum rock and you know 74 well that's the beginning of the ramones and um you know and really they're picking right up from the stooges yeah um, Television, Blondie, all that stuff is kind of like yeah, on, on the yeah. A lot of that uh, goes 
way back into the 70s, the difference is, you know, people were, you know, in a sense, the musicians who went into music after 74 had been kind of sold a bill of goods. You know, they, they, there was no career to be had. You could be as good as the Ramones, as good as television, as good as, you know, <laughs> I mean, only the talking heads, you know, really, maybe the Go-Go's, you know, really broke through, I guess, you know, people who were legitimately part of, you know, the, the punk rock scenes from the 70s, um, you know, and, and that hurts a band like television, you know, they're, 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 they're great. And then they're also rands, you know, they, they don't know what to do. Uh, Perubu doesn't know what to do. Perubu becomes basically, you know, a rough trade art band because there's nothing here in this country for them. And they had a shot, but you know, that's where Rolling Stone and uh, the FM programmers, um, closed off the possibility that even the first Perubu album coming on major distribution or, you know, major independent Mercury, um, there, there were no Mercury, there was nothing for Mercury to do that could sell that record. Nothing. Because it, it was closed off. Yeah, well, and uh, it's, it's, so, it's, it's so ridiculous because, and sorry to interrupt, but it, it's so ridiculous because for a system that sort of founded itself on tearing down the walls, what they ended up doing is erecting new and different walls, uh, you know, whether yeah. it was by yeah. intention or not. And I, it's just, it's that story. Where's that story? There's no five-part documentary on that story that, that I know of yet. So, but anyway. No, I mean, you know, Mike, <coughs> Michael Azarad said that, uh, you know, he, he wrote, our band could be your life because that uh, co-production from public television it was the bbc i think and um the boston um it you know public television station history of rock and roll and they jump from uh what do they do they jump from blondie to nirvana <laughs> you know yeah, which nothing else happened it, in between there yeah that's exactly. like jumping from you know in 2001 from the bone to the spaceship <laughs> you know? right exactly like it's like you're missing and, something and azarad thought oh jesus i better i better write a book i mean that's you know that's a motivation i understand um you know no one is gonna give me an advance to write a book i'm gonna write but he, you know, he was in New York. He he wrote for Rolling Stone. He had, you know, some bona fides I didn't have. Um, but he pitched the book, got it done, and uh, there's some great stories in that book. And it was triggered by this void of history, right. official history that I don't. You know, I did watch that series, but I don't remember it. It, you know, it it does. You know, everyone cares about the 60s, so yeah. they do a better job of the 60s than they did of the 50s or the 70s is what it amounts to. A hundred percent. And I'll say this, as in at the time of this recording, I watched that Velvet Underground documentary last night, and I, mm. I enjoyed it, but there was a very heavy focus on the Warhol-era stuff, Factory, all that. And then when it came down to the third and fourth record and basically anything Doug Ewell was involved with, 
there's about 10 minutes where it's sort of like, oh, yeah, and this stuff happened. And then, you know, there's somebody cattily saying, yeah, they just became a rock band. Uh, you know, something along those lines. And <laughs> well, I was, you know, it's the yeah, story I wanted I, to I tell. Read I, get that, it. I read someone claiming that Doug Yule got better, more respect from the film than uh, he's had in the past. Maybe the books are worse as far as those later years. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a low barrier to cross, but I. <laughs> but but I. Yeah, right. I mean, it doesn't right. treat him disrespectfully. It just it just look. There's like 45 minutes of scene what John Cale and Lou Reed are up to before the Velvet Underground ever happens, and not that that isn't interesting, but to me, it just seems funny that. I feel like that, and, and I realize that I'm atypical in the fact that I've sought out all this information about this band for years and years before it was all immediately available on the internet. So the fact that I didn't learn that much new is that says more to me than to the movie. And it's the movie that, you know, he wanted to tell the stylish, like a completely cool, a million bands form because of them story of the Velvet Underground. Yeah. But it's just very telling to me that even with that, it's like, Oh yeah, but that doesn't fit our narrative, so we're just going to leave that out. We're just going to, you know, like whatever. We'll acknowledge yeah, it. But <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a shame because really the first half of the seventies, you know, um, um, you could go to uh, you know the big halls to see three or four bands, five bands, uh, or you could go to the arenas or the baseball stadiums for the festivals. And um, you could smoke pot, you know. There were reasons that everybody went there, the adults and the kids. And it was a medium that um, had everybody from, you know, the later years of the Velvet Underground to uh, Grand Funk. I mean, you know, Grand Funk Railroad is uh, almost like a void, but they were produced by Zappa and they were at the top of the charts you know, and their live album was a, a a massive hit. And uh but, you know, there was everything in the in what is now called arena rock, you know, a lot of it is just large dance halls where you would go and you'd see the Stooges or you'd see Hawkwind or you'd see them both together with ZZ Top or, you know, whoever. Uh Uriah Heep. I mean, just uh, a million bands went through that medium and at some point the the uh, scene elders of rock and roll, meaning Rolling Stone and, you know, uh, the, the intellectual elite, I guess, of music, uh, didn't want to rub shoulders with, you know, the, uh, you know, the rednecks or the kids or, you know, whatever. And, uh, and so the medium, you know, of arena rock becomes for kids, teenage boys and you know, uh, getting drunk for the first time and throwing up all over their seat. And, you know, it it, it becomes a place you don't want to go to. <laughs> right, exactly, <laughs> <By> the, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and then punk rock reinvents club music, you know, small venue rock and roll. And, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, but, you know, it, 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 it takes 15 years after the Ramones for Nirvana to chart. And um, and uh, when Nirvana charts, that's a little more meaningful than when Blondie had a hit or Devo had a hit, you know, that, that kind of, uh, or Talking Heads, you know. They were, they acclimated to the charts. Right, right. And, I mean, you get into that a little bit in 
that kind of idea with the rock and the pop narcotic, you know, where you talk about how the basically there's a whole decade like we were talking about, decade plus that was just oxygen starved for attention. And then, you know, now you can now there's the Ramones at baseball games. Now there's yeah. like, <laughs> you know, there, there's this, yeah. and people so don't even look at it. Like, it's that, all different. That, uh, that uh, the media, captains of media, uh, Lee Abrams and uh, Jan Wenner, were, um, were really a criminal influence because in aesthetic terms, they were retarding the culture. And, uh, and it's airplay, you know, that's oxygen to a band. And uh, if you don't, if the brain doesn't get oxygen, it's retarded. It gets retarded. You know, you lose brain cells, and that's that's what happened. And um, and you know, one of the problems of say, you know, I don't, I we didn't call it even punk. Never mind hardcore. You know, when we were in 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 the bunker, you know, trying to market this stuff, um, we at SST we fought against. You know the maximum rock and roll or the discord uh, straight edge idea that uh, you should first uh, cut off your hair before you come to our concerts. You know, <laughs> um, we you know because there was this sort of um, you know this sort of club like uh, membership mentality, and you know teenagers are somewhat like that, but. Um, the you know it, it was encouraged, I guess, by the blackout of the media that you know it was us against them, and punk rock was, you know, in England they thought it, it, rock and roll was dead, and that's what punk rock did. You know, that's not how Americans thought. You know, America, yeah. the American scene came out of musicians who hung out at record stores and were doing their own records going back to the early 70s. And, um, you know, it doesn't really catch on until television and Patti Smith and, um, you know, maybe The Residents or Chrome or, you know, people who were doing records in the mid-70s uh, with no hope for distribution, really. Um, you couldn't even advertise and Slash that early. You know, right, right. New York rocker. <laughs> you know, you you know there. I think who put the bomb was coming out, and uh, what was that other thing that was coming out then? Um, well, Greg Shaw had an earlier uh, fanzine called. Uh, well, I shouldn't even. I'd be guessing, so I forget some of this stuff. It's been a long time since I looked at uh, uh, Rock and the Pop Narcotic, but it's all in there. <laughs> Right, right. It's still still available. <laughs> Easy way to find out. <laughs> well, I see. I borrowed a lot of uh, fanzines, um, early Crawdaddy, and um, um, whatever. It's something like a Teenage Gazette or something like that. And uh, uh, I haven't looked at that stuff in a long time. But um, yeah. Anyway, there there were you know it was so underground. You marvel that they bothered. But again, record store culture is what you had before, um, I don't know, I guess that came up with FM Underground. You know, some of these stores were specifically like a 1970 record store that was 
kind of uh, dedicated to 50s rock and roll, uh, oldies, and also maybe uh, importing British um, rarities, you know, things that were not released here or, or the, you know, the singles as they came out in England of someone like the Rolling Stones or David Bowie or something like that. So there were these, you know, specialty record stores and, and those became very important to us at Systematic and a number of them turned on to, um, you know, American punk rock and, um, and how could they not? I mean, you know, we were, we were distributing slash magazine and, um, no mag and, uh, the writing, you know, the writing in slash and the, and the, Records coming out on Danger House, uh, and then SST. I mean, it it just what was going on in LA was, um, you know, was extremely important. And uh, you know, it took me a long time to to say, oh yeah, if Tower Records had been national, you know, uh, um, things would have been a lot easier for us. But at that point, they had only just uh, expanded up and down the West Coast. Right, so they yeah, were in yeah. Seattle. They were not in Portland yet, but they were in uh, Berkeley and San Francisco. And then they were, you know, they, they, they started in uh, Sacramento. And uh, No, and I, know, I know it well because I'm, I'm from Modesto. So I, that was two, oh, yeah, two towns yeah. away. So, I mean. <laughs> Where are you now? In Wisconsin? Uh, Milwaukee, yeah. Milwaukee. Oh yeah, I'm just writing about the Oil Tasters, who um, oh, nice. you know I, I released their album on Thermidor, and they had sent their 45 to me at uh, Systematic, and I think you know Jim Nash at Wax Tracks in Chicago had told them, you know, um, I, I had asked Jim to tell me about anything good that came in over the counter from a local band. And the oil tasters played Chicago often enough to be considered local. So I think that was how I connected um, to the oil tasters, and um, and they were great. And uh, and uh, but you know, yeah, well, you know Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I, you know, most of my life I lived in Oakland as well. So when you're you're naming off all this all this the stuff that was yeah. going on in Berkeley, like I know some of those locations, but basically oh, yeah. after all that stuff, happened. I was right by Ashby Park <laughs> Station. Yeah, yeah. I I used to live two blocks from Ashby Park, so I, yeah, it, it's. Oh yeah, that's that's me. One block away, I uh, took a took the train to the Oakland, uh, you know, Oakland Athletics to watch the White Sox once in a while. <laughs> Nice. And uh, and then took Bart over to San Francisco to see bands and uh, yeah it was it was uh, you know it was a, a nice couple years I spent in uh, Berkeley there doing that stuff and it kind of reminds me of you know I love Philip K Dick and he would you know throw in Bay Area locations in his books and I always get a little thrill out of it like seeing Children's Playland or something show up in one of his books it's like hey I, that's by Lake Merritt I know that <laughs> <laughs> I went out to um, Concord. Oh, yeah. Um, with uh, Negative Land, they wanted me. To, they wanted to show me their city, and um, and uh, and we went to Chuck E. Cheese, which uh, you know was was a small chain at that point, and and those guys were just thrilled with 
the um, the birthday moment when the puppet show started. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's it's and, very surreal. We, you know, we, <laughs> we put out their second album on the uh, optional label at uh, Systematic, and um, and uh, yeah, those guys were a trip. Did did you ever? I mean, that whole the whole. I mean, there's literal books written about it, but the whole thing with you two, uh, what was what was your take on like when all that went down? It kind of well, I, I introduced uh, Mark Hostler and them to Greg Yin, and uh, negative. We were up there with I was up there with Black Flag from SST, and um, and Black Flag played the night before, and then Negative Land was playing a art gallery in the city. Of, you know, really. Uh, kind of an underground uh, art gallery. It was just a retail space. Uh, the next day in the afternoon, and um, and uh, it was great performance. Um, and uh, kind of like a fake science lecture by David, I think. And awesome. he, he had this electrical current snapping in a Petri dish, and that was the rhythm machine. <laughs> Oh, how rad! And and, uh, Greg uh, showed up right after he missed the music, but he he was interested and he showed up. You know, we had stayed at different places, and um, um, but that that's when they first met. I I probably wouldn't have put them directly on SST because I liked how SST had had been identified with you know played rock music. You know, our bands practiced and they played rock music, you know, real instruments. And I would have put a a side label together maybe for stuff like Negative Land, just 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 so that people knew if SST was on there, they never heard of the band, they could still buy it and know it was going to be well-played music. Yeah, instead of being so, like this you know, freak factor. But I was gone by thing. then. Yeah, so, well. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and it just, it seems so, and I know there's a lot of kind of background for it, but, you know, with the Descendants. Well, the funny funny thing know. is, both bands, Black Flag and Negative Land, were anti-drug at that period, you know, at least as far as their own behavior <laughs> went. Right. They didn't touch the stuff. And they both became, I guess, big acid heads or big, uh, you know, potheads. Uh, I haven't been in touch with Mark in a long time, but um, I gather <laughs> they got into the candy at yeah. some point. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's as far as having, you know, SSD having that 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 ethos, that sort of like you know, you don't necessarily know exactly what it's going to sound like, but it's a band. There's, you know, it's a there's. Going to be people yeah, playing. I mean, I think it helped a band like uh, Overkill or The Stains or Universal Congress of, you know, records that people would maybe look at. You know, in retrospect, I think we should have done what the the early '60s, late '50s record labels did and put an SST logo in the top right corner of the record front cover you know so it's just because really if foreground any, if any sure, label yeah. had a you know an identity in the early 80s it was sst yeah absolutely and and yeah a, a strong one at that right i mean it was it was it, a brand yeah, you could trust been, it would have been a catastrophe because every band would have objected i had to convince Husker Du, the minutemen sacrum trust and the meat puppets 
to talk them out of putting out records without their name on the front cover. You know, that, that seemed to be a dream to release a record and not put your name on the front cover. Um, you know, (laughs) I guess some people in some (laughs) British bands did that. Um, but even, I think Greg and Chuck said they had talked the Minutemen out of doing that on the punchline album. So they added that little typewriter thing, you know, uh, in the middle of the painting. But, you know, some, for some reason that was a dream of all bands. It's like, we don't even need to put our name on it. And, um, and um, make people hunt for it, or they'll find it by radar. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But it was funny that they each came up with that idea independently of each other. Yeah, and it's it's talk about an idea that has not aged well too. And not that it was fantastic at that point, yeah. especially for an independent band. Now but... it's different. I mean, now, like you say, it's all digital. Um, it's foreign language to me. I use Facebook and I use YouTube through Facebook to post music because, you know, I, I lost a friend who was about uh, 13 years older than me. And, uh, he had, uh, you know, he was into music in the fifties and early sixties in a way that I was too young to be. And, uh, he got into Delta blues almost, uh, exclusively jug band and Delta. And, uh, but he, I, you know, he would, in his old age, he would complain um, well, he would notice that, uh, young players could, you know, could play really well. They just didn't know what to listen to in his opinion. Mm. He had identified what he thought was the, the greatest, uh, of the folk musics being the Delta blues. And in terms of band music, the first rock and roll was jug bands is what he thought. So he put those two together. The, the the Delta was Delta Blues was country, the Jug Band was city, and both were huh. actually within uh, seventy miles of each other, probably Memphis and the Delta. But at, I, what I took that from that is, yeah, you want to you want to um, not just complain about that. You want to post the music people should know about and uh and so i kind of use facebook with that in mind is you know for my own uh filling out my knowledge of obscurities from the my era 50s 60s 70s 80s mostly um but also just um this is my best opinion uh, uh based on the knowledge i have and uh you know i hope there's some 20 year olds out there who are um benefiting from that um because you know the 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 marketing power uh of of media is always going to choose uh a thinner a thinner gruel you know than right yeah a real meat and potatoes band uh because the media in rock and roll is something that's best, you know, listened to live, you know, from a stage in a small place. And any anything between the stage and, and you 
meaning radio, records, recording studio, is is um, it's going to benefit pop, not rock. And uh, and it, if you realize that, you can sort of compensate. And uh, that's what I thought I did when I kind of early figured out that SST was, you know, just just getting the first non-black flag record, the Minutemen Seven Inch, Paranoid Time, uh, and then the and then hearing the Second Trust, I thought, oh Jesus, this is you know, uh, do these guys ever miss? <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and they had an advocate in you to be able to articulate why it was important and why it would be something worth the listener's yeah. attention. And, and that's, I, I see yeah, that. And, and that seems I'm obvious. I'm not a musician. <laughs> see, if I was a musician, you know, uh, Greg and Joe Biza and Mike Watt, they, they, you know, I heard your uh, interview with Kira, you know, they know what they know, but they're the musician. They have a different right. perspective. It's, it's, I mean, they've listened to great bands and they have, you know, they have that, but, from really outside of it, um, I guess it's 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 um, not necessarily easier to see, but um, I think I know what uh, a record buyer needs to know about better than maybe a musician does. Yeah, you can distill it down to even just like what hooks you in, right? And then like that, there's other folks that would you know, be like, oh, that sounds cool. Like, interesting. Okay, I'll check that out. And and then, and just having that guide, that uh, <laughs> that guide into yeah. the music, you know, that's something that these large corporate monoliths can't provide. And that's never going to be replaceable. No, no. I mean, you know, if, if you read uh, John Hammond's uh, memoir, I mean, it, you know, I mean, there are some, apparatus in the industry who know a lot about music but they've all warped their thing to line up with the commercial realities now our our perspective coming out of systematic was listen do the do the best you know your best idea the best way you can and um you know whether it's car sickness or flipper or uh, the oil tasters or black flag you know not every band that's great is a populist kind of has a populist hook black flag had a populist hook and and uh, they could be sort of like a gateway drug you know for a 14 year old in a way that uh, probably Flipper wasn't going to be that, or Negative right. Land, you yeah. know, that, that comes later, you know, as you as you expand your listening, and um, so yeah, it's it's um, it. The other the other thing I was going to say about the musicians I worked with at SST was, you know, by the third or fourth album, they all were kind of. Look at looking for a, a way into radio play, and so you've got the the later Husker Du, the later Minutemen. The you've got really, I don't know how to explain Second Trust because they went in a jazz direction, which was not the same thing as you know 
more typically college radio right. influence, which is what you got from the Minutemen and Husker Du and the Meat Puppets. Um, Black Flag also, their commercial steps were more towards what, you know, what they thought of as the hard rock, you know, acoustical experience, you know, the, the audience that liked guitar rock. And I kind of, I like that approach better than, um, the pop, uh, new wave, uh, accommodation that Who's Could Do and, and even the Minutemen and Firehose did or the Meat Puppets. You know, the Meat Puppets early on were really wild. Mm-hmm. And oh, sure. they might turn a corner and and completely change what they were doing on stage in the middle of a show. Um, so I was kind of bored when they were, you know, when they in s- settled into a thing that they people seemed to like. Yeah. Yeah, they were playing fast, but kind of light. Light. And I thought too fast for what I would like to hear Kurt play on the guitar. And you need, you know, you need to not play that fast to really play psychedelic and melodic, uh, you know, which he's capable of uh, really doing amazing stuff. But also, I just, I remember him flipping uh, backwards off of uh, the uh, Al's Bar stage and being, uh, you know, landing on his feet. You know, still playing guitar. Right, right. <laughs> which has which says a remember, lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A few years later, I told Kurt after uh, you know a little bit of a disappointing set. I guess I'll never see you flip over backwards and land on your feet again. You know, they were just doing a well-oiled set that didn't really stop for anything, and then it ended on "Good Golly, Miss Molly," and there he cut loose with the guitar. You know, finally in the encore. It's it's interesting too when you because when you speak about all of these bands around this era, it, it definitely has a, an air and a sense of anything being possible. And then slowly, it's not that that went away, but it, you know, for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons, personalities, artistic direction, whatever, it seems like things got a little tamer. Uh, as yeah, went on. well, it, you know, it's it is true. I would say the sweet spot was uh, uh, 82, maybe 81 to 83, um, where a label like SST could um, could operate because there was zero commercial potential. And so actually it goes from the late 70s because, um, you know, the... Uh, Greg and Chuck and Spot recorded um, stuff as, as early as uh, 77, 78, 79. And, um, you know, once the first wave of uh, New York bands, uh, television, Ramones, Perubu from Cleveland, when, when they failed, those signings just ended. And that probably that probably ended in 78 and it meant that a band like the misfits or a band like you know it's like the bad brains were you know another great band um but they didn't know what to do you know um i think red cross was like that too in a way 
they thought of themselves as having commercial potential. Yeah. But, and so half the time they would look at what we were doing at SST and be interested in it. And, um, and then the other half, they would think there's got to be a way to get signed to a major. Right, right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, it's harder on the East Coast for bad brains to, you know, to decide. Um, I mean, they did do an early seven-inch record, and they had problems with their manager, and whether it was in print or, or bootlegged, you know, I don't, I don't remember. I didn't know all of that stuff. We talked about doing a bad brains record, and, and uh, they... They showed up with some time in L.A., and Spot was in Texas doing the dicks. So they would have gone into the studio with Spot and then didn't when he wasn't around. And that's that's a shame, I think, because uh, that, that could have really been, uh, you know, the best representation of them before, you know, before they went a little more metal, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, that's the thing. uh I think Greg and Chuck put bands in the studio quickly when Spot was, you know, was able to do that. And, uh, and the reason is they knew, because they were a little bit older, they knew that, you know, a, a great band wasn't necessarily going to last into its third year. And if, if you didn't record them, they might, uh, be gone they might never be heard from. <laughs> well, that was a problem with the Screamers for the longest time, right? I mean, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, I think they were a little pretentious and thought, you know, they were going to, again, they were either going to get signed or that they were too good for the, you know, uh, uh, too good for vinyl records. And they wanted to do, uh, they wanted to debut in video form, right? you know, which the world wasn't ready for that. But um, I was lucky to have seen them. They, they toured once up the coast and I saw them in Portland. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, they were so good, but of course, well, they had, they had the Gary Panther, you know, screaming head logo. And that brought a bunch of people into, you know, a, a Portland hall that we'd never seen at a wiper show. Sure. It wasn't a, it wasn't a big crowd, but a lot of curiosity seekers. And I don't know, I don't know one asked them what they thought of it, but. They couldn't have forgotten it because uh, Tomata was. Um, Is that, it's, he it's, swore he was regularly staring right at you. Right, right. It, it almost and, like looked like Tomata de Plenty, right? So it's yeah. <laughs> it worked perfectly. Yeah. I mean, it, it was unlike anything else. And uh, um, you know, I'm sure I, I'd like to see that Velvet Underground film. I'm I was never that aware of them, and uh, I heard the stuff on the radio. Uh, when they got on the radio, and then I picked up some records, and I, I was an Eno fan, so I have the, uh, the Nico record. I think. Oh Eno sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, and um, uh, but uh, they they had that that element that uh, they were talking about. Um, uh, the Todd Haynes, the director. Yeah. Um, he was talking about how anti-hippie the gay sensibility was, and it was pre-Stonewall, uh, pre-liberationist gay, so it wasn't political, 
you know. Right. That's one thing yeah. that, you know, was kind of odd about San Francisco or being being near there in Berkeley in that period, 80, 81, is, um, you know, there were plenty of gay punk rockers, but they felt completely alienated from what you think of as gay San Francisco culture because it was hedonistic and um, uh, into physical beauty and uh, uh, spending money in fine restaurants and uh, looking good. You know, well, it's and, an easy pull and for the it to go to. Thing was you know much rougher and yeah. uh, and didn't didn't trust any of that uh, disco, right. you know, uh, hedonism. Uh, it's an interesting culture clash, and then of course you know all those men die, and uh, their their uh, weird, uh, you know, it's an outlaw voice, but also. Um, a rich culture, mon- monetarily rich, yes, and consumerist, and that voice uh, is gone. You know, it never came back. Yeah, and I think it's you hit on something important because I think for some folks maybe it's harder to understand the sort of change up in those folks' attitude that led to like yuppies and whatnot. But if you look at it from that perspective, it's like, oh no, you can you can kind of see where that that jump would come from because there's still that. You know, they kept the self-involvement in the commercialization, and they just dropped, like, the free love part of it because they thought that was juvenile now. Okay, well, is it any wonder why a new generation came up and said, like, hey, this is this is not yeah. good. Well, <laughs> we don't like this. Well, we're in, yeah, we're sort of, you know, I guess gay culture became um, sort of inherited by the lesbians who didn't die. And then... Yeah. You know, left-wing politics is, you know, is always around. I mean, you know, punk rockers sound like uh, old hippies now. And um, um, I guess Exene said something, you know, last night. So that's a big contretemps on um, Facebook today. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm sure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, so they're just arguing about, well, half of X appears to be, you know, uh, uh, QAnon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I you know, I wouldn't say that, but, you know, they're certainly uh, right-wingers, and the other half is left-wingers. And, uh, uh, well, my joke was uh, I used to think because uh, Juan Williams was on both Fox and NPR that he was – single-handedly holding the country together. <laughs> he was the bridge. <laughs> and then NPR fired him. Right, right. <laughs> so, so now it sounds like X is holding the country together. And uh, Lord that us. <laughs> makes perfect pictographic sense, you know. Right. X is uh, oh, yeah, the, two the, slashes yeah. opposing, meeting in the middle. Yeah, the, uh, what, what do they call it? Uh, um, uh, not uh, palindrome, like um, the symmetry, the symmetry of it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if you saw, I think, I don't know if it was um, Please Kill Me. Somebody did an interview with John Doe just two weeks ago, maybe. And I thought he had a very uh, mature, um, you know, beautifully stated um, explanation for, you know, the mix of political sentiment within the band. 
He's an interesting um, dude. And that is really rare, that kind of understanding. It is, because he's very... He has a very articulated worldview and sense of politics himself. So to be that, to look at it from an overarching perspective, like from a larger perspective, and and to have that that ability to sort of, I don't agree with that, but that's what it is. And, you know, here's how we're going to work through it. And we're not going to, I don't think you're a terrible yeah. person for thinking that way. I just don't agree with you in any way, shape or form. And it's, I, that's pretty interesting to me. There's not a lot of that yeah, these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, you don't, you know, it was, it's, it's, uh, it's a voice that uh, nobody says, you know, nobody uh, hears, hears that, uh, because people have chosen sides, and there's, yeah. and, and yet, my side, your side, exactly. Um, yeah, and and uh, you know, X or uh, X meant a lot to. Uh, probably not my generation so much. Um, um, I mean, I was, uh, I'm, I'm more like Chuck and Greg and Spot in terms of age. Uh, to me, X was maybe not quite modern enough sounding. <laughs> uh, uh, I was explaining to someone else, um, I was, well, Bill Stevenson was just up here and, uh, we had a long talk and, uh, uh, and, um, I was talking about, oh, the, we were talking about the replacements. As, as another band that just wasn't quite modern enough. It's like, why would you listen to The Replacements or X when you could listen to The Wipers and Black Flag, you know, right. just, yeah. or The Germs or, you know, some somebody that was of the moment. And, uh, of course, the moment included all kinds of different sounding bands. I love The Sleepers and uh, Flipper and, you know, um, The Minutemen, you know, and St. Vitus. I mean, uh, but... Uh, um, there, something you did. I guess it's uh, the American version of that English idea that you could kill rock and roll and it was over, and then all you needed was you know a little bit of David Bowie in your background, and um, and you could do New Order or you could do The Cure or you could uh, do Flock of Seagulls or ABC or you know to just rip off. R and B, or you know, that's what they did. I don't know what they really thought. I, you know, in the punk sense, I thought the Fall was the only band that really followed through uh, on their original premise. Well, and without like almost a single regard to what the listener cared about it, <laughs> to a certain degree. Yeah. You know, I mean, just. But, but then our version of that was sort of like you didn't really want to hear that. Um, uh, that earlier there would be a white musician's ambition to sound black, to be blues conversant, and to have a smooth, uh, you know, a, a smooth blues R and B approach to, uh, you know, the slow hand on the guitar. Um, by, uh, you know, you just didn't want to hear white blues bands anymore. I was amazed. I liked the the Blasters and X as much as I did, because there is a way to play roots music that is not um, what the hippies did to it. Oh sure. I mean, what what, what do you think about? I mean, like like James Chance, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you That's know, one way to the, take it. The, uh, Caleb from the Oil Tasters uh, described himself once to me as uh, 
James uh, Siegfried's understudy or uh, roadie. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and before before he left uh, Milwaukee for New York and uh, changed his name, and uh, but uh, I wonder what he was doing in Milwaukee. You know, I don't think there's any record of him of James Chance recording in Milwaukee before he moved. Yeah, you gotta you gotta wonder. Like, I, I it's it's considering the path that he took. Like, you gotta wonder what 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 is the early. Well, yeah, I mean, right? people who went to New York went to New York for you know certain reasons. Uh, Kim Gordon left L.A. to go to New York. I mean, that was much rarer because right. um, if you're in Chicago, Milwaukee, Cleveland, you're gonna go towards New York. But to me, L.A. was the place to be, and there's there's some element of the quality of SST and beyond SST, just the, the city itself is about the accessibility of major entertainment industry. Yeah. You know, all those, there were no pressing plants in the Bay Area, and we didn't realize that when we moved there. And so it, it was uh, obnoxious trying to uh, organize record releases. You know, you could master at Fantasy, but they didn't have a rock and roll sensibility, really. Um, I, I don't, I, do, I was only in there once in a while. We did that, we mastered uh, the SPK album there. <laughs> <laughs> and saw Neil Sean walking down the corridor. Oh, nice! <laughs> uh, same, the same day. <laughs> ah, funny. <laughs> I I think. But, oh, god. No, I I I'll, I'll uh, talk about anything you want to. Well, I wanted to. I realized we hadn't talked about. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about social media, but I mean, you've been maintaining a blog that I think is quite interesting for about ten years now. That new Vulgate uh, blog. Yeah, I mean, we used to be weekly, and uh, you know, I, I I promised myself that I I wouldn't learn how to lay it out and do the posting, uh, and so I've you know I've lost help uh, doing that end of it, and that got me out of the habit of it. We're about to do a new issue, and I'll have something on the oil tasters in that, and then I've got a an essay from a Georgian. Uh, photographer who covered um sergey uh, parajanov the filmmaker oh cool and um so he's got a little remembrance in english of uh of parajanov that's very good and we'll use his photos and um and that'll make a nice issue but yeah it seems like you know once a year maybe we can cough up an issue but i would i spent so much time also on the film book that that dragged me away from the blog um, you know, we were just testing it out for, I wanted my friend Dave Lightborn, the, you know, the, the Delta Blues, uh, uh, student, um, to write. Um, he got into music and marijuana and that sort of kept him from being the natural writer that he would have been. So he, if, if you look at the index on the new Vulgate, you'll see, uh, he's written about, Mike Bloomfield, who he knew, Elvis, who he saw in 1957. Um, who else has he written about? Paul Nelson. Um, you know, there's some very good pieces uh, that I got out of David uh, before he died, and uh, right. uh, would have been nice, uh, and I would have maybe kept on it a little longer or a little more often if he'd been around. 
but it was hard to get him to write. I mean, I've I've avoided, you know, certain things. Uh, you know, might have an impulse in '79 uh, to pick up a guitar, and I avoided that because uh, I knew it would distract me from what I really wanted to do, which was basically write. The the film book, uh, which I studied Parajanov for is called Stone Mail, and, and, you know, that's the book I've spent the most time on. Um, I think people like the Enter Naomi book the best, but the Stone Mail, the film book, is, I think, the best realized book I've done. It's the best design book, too. I, you know, I've collected, I started working on it right after I finished Rockin' the Pop Narcotic in 91. Oh, wow. So and that was in... So I started collecting wow. stills to illustrate stone mail uh you know way back then and um and so it's a beautiful looking book with a lot of uh, a, a lot of illustrations of american acting and film going back to um 1908 probably is the first uh, still that i have in there yeah, and and that's that's impressive. I, real quick, just on the back the new Vulgate for a minute. I really appreciated the ACDC post. I guess it was like spring of last year. I thought that was a really oh yeah that was a really yeah. interesting piece. Yeah, BC um, Miller is a just a Facebook friend. I've never met him, yeah. and uh, he was doing he was posting these things one you know one clip at a time. Uh, and, it, and it immediately occurred to me it'd make a great uh, essay. So yeah. I started uh, click, click and dragging them all together and then sent it to him for a kind of a tune-up. And, um, yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah, he figured out from Portland, Oregon, all of the, uh, you know, the influences, that you know, the bands that never left Australia, never got out of there, yeah. uh, that contributed to the scene that ACDC was part of. And then he looked at, you know, late, one, once Bon Scott was out of the band, uh, you know, the ACDC, some some reviewer, uh, you know, a classic line was, he described their lyrics as single entendre. <laughs> and which, which is unfair, sort of, but uh, also, funny, you know, well-targeted. <laughs> yeah. But the Bon Scott lyrics, no one pays any attention to. Yeah. And he was a great singer. Yes. And, yes, um, agreed. You just, they be, you know, I remember when they were pitched as a new wave band on their first album in, in the United States, and um, they became, they became really... You know, the crossover band that went, you know, I visited my sister at the University of Illinois, and you heard ACDC coming out of dorm room windows, you know, in the right. 70s. And that just, um, no one else succeeded like that uh, who, who, you know, had anything to do with uh, New Wave, you know, as far as the industry felt. I guess they thought Angus in a schoolboy uniform was New Wave. Because you know? <laughs> of the outfit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it, you know, reminded him of Cheap Trick or, uh, you know, sure. or yeah. whatever. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, but I always appreciated the, you know, you never quite knew what you were going to get with those posts, but they're always, you know, pretty interesting. In a way that I, I think that type of I don't know if you want to call it journalism or, or rock criticism or whatever. It really, I'm not going to say it doesn't exist anymore, but it just seems exceedingly rare to me. Anything that goes in depth that doesn't have like some, 
commercialistic hook or agenda yeah. or hot take. I guess everyone's everything is hot takes now. Everybody, it, it's important for everyone to have an opinion and to get it out there into the internet as quickly as possible. And I, I find that well, yeah. In a way, it's still a version of the same problem we had, which was, you know, why was Jan Winter going to let David Frick write about? Uh, the Minutemen. Yeah. Um, you know, wh- what urgency was there going to be? Because, you know, uh, one month uh, there was a new Bruce Springsteen album. Then there was a, a a new David Bowie album. Then there was a Paul McCartney Wings album. Then, you know, so these critics all got into this pattern where um, you want to review the big album of the month. You know, the Chicago Reader was like that. Uh, the, the guy, the other Bill Wyman was, was like that. And he's like, why would you use the Chicago Reader to review, you know, the top new release every month um, when your club listings are full of, um, you know, um, uh, Black Flag, Minor Threat, uh, you know, Who's in Town, uh, L7, uh, you know, there's all these bands yeah, yeah, going yeah. through the clubs, and they're not paying any attention, uh, you know, until eventually they started paying attention. But um, even then, it sort of was top-heavy to uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Wilco, you know, it's just sort of like yeah. uh, there were, you know, there were great bands in Chicago, but they died on the vine as late as the '90s. Well, and and I'm not sure if you if you notice this or not, but I would say sometime around the early 2000s, there seemed to be this push towards kind of re uh, making making it rebellious to like mainstream pop music. Like that's the rebellious opinion, yeah. where it's like, well, that's yeah. no, that's mainstream pop music by its very nature. It's it's very well, difficult it, to know, say yeah, rebellious it, to listen to it. <laughs> you know that the uh, canny industry, um, and um, and also people who listen to music for a living. You know, it turns into a job to listen to new stuff. And what you really want to do is, you know, is um, write about uh, the replacements or the blasters or, you know, Bowie, or even, even the Velvet Underground, they don't really want to write about the Velvet Underground. They really didn't like, you know, the guys who were old enough to have been around, by and large, did not like them. They, they um, you could, you know, not not every writer was a real hippie in, in the sense. I mean, I, I think I didn't, I didn't understand how deep hippie how perverse hippie was until i really moved down to la and then uh um you know uh, uh lori from the band monitor and uh raymond pettibone they had an interest in uh the perverse aspects of hippie which had sort of been forgotten or laundered out of it you know um and uh because, you know, people use hippie to, to mean uh, the political hippies or, um, you know, the blues hippies who, you know, uh, were just uh, uh, trying to uh, trying to play soulfully. or um, And uh, 
it was more in, it was a it was an interesting uh, sh- kind of uh, sharp-edged uh, philosophy in part, and um, and uh, not that friendly. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not always so friendly and uh, socially, uh, you know, well integrated. Yeah. And and again, it just seems it seems like there was this push and I could mention the outlets that I would I would personally blame for them. But it, it, it kind of being what, what I the things that I ascribe uh, to Lester Bangs, but sort of like cut rate Lester Bangs, but only the like really indulgent parts becoming <laughs> what rock criticism yeah. becomes. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, this is see the the reason why I like Lester Bangs is because there was these parts that were indulgent, borderline intolerable, and then he would get to the good stuff, and he'd be like, ah, there's the payoff. And it seems like that there's well, a whole yeah, generation like, that know, didn't his, do that. <laughs> his interview uh, warfare with. With Lou Reed, I yeah, mean, there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that in the literature. I I kept wondering is that is is that not in the film? Not no, you know? not at all. It's it's it's. I, I mean, mean, unless Lester's dead, of course, he couldn't be a talking head on the film. But you know, you, you the, hear you hear kind of anecdotally that Lou was difficult, and you get very little in the way of uh, it, it being shown on the screen or addressed directly let's put it that way yeah i mean there i guess the film is part of this there is this move to claim i mean with punk rock you know you get people claiming punk rock is jewish punk rock is gay punk rock is female you know all these all these sectarian uh claims of authorship and um to me punk rock begins you know in record stores and there's a certain kind of dweeb who can't get laid who hangs out at record stores and lives through his records and what he has and and um, often they were buying records from 10 years earlier um, uh, you know I was talking to Bill about uh, Bill Stevenson about Tim Yohannan and I never quite got around to telling him the story of Tim Yohannan in terms of 80s hardcore. And because he he would wear, this is in Berkeley, he, he would wear a leather jacket and have grease, you know, like a 50s greaser hairstyle. And uh, no one else was doing that then. And he, he was on the radio and he, they started the fanzine and... Uh, at a certain point, I mean, he, Ray Farrell was a friend of his and, and uh, knew him better than I did. And I think it was him, who uh, Ray, who told me that at a certain point, Tim believed hardcore was the new hippie, and he tied his wagon to it, and he got rid of all of his 60s garage 45s. And apparently he had a killer collection of all of those regional non-hits, you know, right? Sure, yeah. That some loser put out out of Houston or Cleveland or you know, God knows where. I mean, those records are worth a fortune. They're mostly sitting in collections in Sweden and Germany and Japan, probably. You know, Americans won't won't outbid foreigners for that stuff, uh, or any American, you know, classic records and uh but uh tim 
gave up on the art or you know or music for the social movement that was coming right. and then they just um they couldn't you know they could their record reviews couldn't be trusted then because if you were Finnish and you were a communist it, you were going to get a good review right <laughs> <laughs> the, and, the, the the art itself and, notwithstanding it fit the model of what yeah. was being yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it had to be debased to be a social movement that any you know any four 15 year olds could uh replicate and uh you know and uh i've said it in in the book i think um if not in rock and the pop narcotic i said it in enter naomi once you know, punk rock begins in 76 with, you know, from all most intention purposes, the first Ramones album. There's a Dictators album. There's a television single and Patti Smith. But, you know, it begins under uh, the labor government in England and the Jimmy Carter administration in America. Um, somehow, the politics of culture means that once Thatcher comes in in 79 in England and Reagan comes in in 80, even though they have nothing to do with music culture, they lobotomize or or the music culture lo- self-lobotomizes and then starts singing about uh, Thatcher and right. <laughs> singing about Reagan, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in such a dumb, uh, you know, reflexive way that it almost takes a whole uh, genre out of what you paid attention to. If you were me, you know, because um, that that isn't real. <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, you peg your art to uh, a president or a uh, prime minister you know, for protest, well, you know, your people aren't going to listen to your music for very long. Well, and it, it, it goes back to the your team, my team thing, too, right? Like, it's just sort of like you're you're putting on the jersey, and, and there you go. And it's automatically going to yeah, place and, it at a point of time, too. And, and a certain part of the media, um, you know, would come, would would pay attention to that stuff as if it was important. And, um, you know, every four years, Bruce Springsteen, you know, will say, uh, I don't like to endorse candidates, but this election is really an important one. <laughs> you know? And uh, uh, anyone who needs guidance from a, a performer, whether he's an actor, <laughs> a musician, uh, you know, right. a, ballet, a ballerina, you're in trouble. You yeah, know. perhaps you should you should consider different sources for your uh, not. Yeah, I mean, not not that. Don't get me wrong. Not that each each person doesn't. You know, it's their it's their choice to do whatever they want. But it does seem somewhat silly to be like, well, you know what I want to do? I want to hear what Miley Cyrus has to say about it, and then I'll make my decision. No, well, nobody, well, you know, that. yeah, I'm sure <laughs> uh, I'm sure Bob Dylan thought what people assumed he thought. But I always liked that interview where. Uh, you know, the the guy from the hip alternative paper was uh, asking him, uh, um, why don't we, this is in the late 60s, why don't, you, why don't we get some more uh, protest songs from you? 
and uh, Dylan is toying around with him, you know, like he doesn't know what he's talking about. And the guy goes, well, you know, like uh, like uh, uh, a song about against the Vietnam War. And Dylan says, who says I'm against the war? <laughs> right. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just messing <laughs> with him. He had, no, yeah, he yeah, had yeah. no, I mean, he didn't know, you know, he just was there for the wrong reason, asking an artist the wrong question. Right, exactly, and who just is like a, like a cat or something? He's gonna, now he's going to play with them. He's like, oh, we're now yeah, I'm going to mess with yeah. you because that's what yeah, I want. I mean, to do. I, I I didn't. I mean, my friend David, uh, you know, was a Dylan obsessive because he was sort of a uh, you know contemporary of him as far as acoustic guitar and stuff. But um, I never paid much attention to Dylan, just like uh, the Velvet Underground. I was, you know, I I. I came up with top 40 radio and then switched to FM probably in 71 or something like that. And I was in Chicago. I don't think Chicago radio was quite as good as Cleveland or um, maybe uh, Houston or L.A. even. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's different, too. And again, that's there still was some degree of regionality. Too, whereas now yeah. it's all no, yeah. not even it's not even Clear Channel now. It's uh, what is it? Um, <laughs> what's what's the megacorp that controls all the radio now? I'm, I'm blanking, but yeah, Clear Channel was bought by somebody, right? By, uh, yeah, it used to be something like Jax or something, and then Clear Channel bought Jax, and then God knows who bought Clear Channel. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it gets oh, I think it's it's something Live? really. It's iHeart. Oh, iHeart Media is 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 uh, was the um, they separated out from that. Like I, it's, that's it's, it. Yeah. Point point of fact yeah, is, yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I could have uh, done radio after SST. I always thought, you know, if I'd stayed in in music, I would I would move into radio and put off writing screenplays a little bit longer. But because uh, you know, America needs great radio, and it it hasn't had it really. Um, you you know, it it even K Rock was not great radio. Um, Rodney was great radio. Um, yeah, one show. You was could great. hear yeah. a little <laughs> bit of stuff, but yeah, they yeah. went British New Wave really fast. Yeah. Well, and, and, and it still exists, but I, I think it's it's a cultural importance is probably somewhat lessened by the fact that you can just immediately call up anything anywhere uh, on, on the internet, and it's sort of devalued a little bit because of that. But by extension, the sort of trusted authority that can like be your your tour guide, your 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 into the path into something you may not have heard is all still just as important. It's just that the the gates have well, changed as yeah, have the gatekeepers. Yeah, it's like Ed Sullivan was not hip, and uh, and yet he had someone on every week that you wanted to see, and so his lack of pretension allowed better music to get wider exposure than these hip people who started programming FM radio into sterility. And uh, so you got to be careful, you know, it's it's uh, it's no crime to be a square if you are doing a good job. Uh, Yeah, yeah. you don't have to be cool. (laughs) It's not to your benefit if you're hip, if you're doing a bad job. Absolutely. No. And and I think that's something that people get now that there's this melding of the personality of the artist and the art that seems to be almost inexorable at this point culturally 
and nobody really questions that hard. I think everyone has to feels like they have to present themselves in a certain way, and everybody has to be cool. Yeah. And so, therefore, if everybody's trying to like be cool and do the same thing, then all kind of ends up being like thin gruel, like you were talking about earlier, right? I mean, yeah, it's like we get it. Well, one one you know one thing one thing I got as as uh you know someone in uh, late high school years uh, from watching late night uh, talk shows in those days you know whether it was Dick Cavett or or Bob Cromie or David Susskind even the Carson show sometimes um you know the 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 guests would hang around and they would talk to each other and you'd see people like um Lenny Bruce or uh um Jerzy Kaczynski, or, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, people who were controversial, which in the context of 1970 or thereabouts was sexy. And uh, you got the impression the television host of the show was presenting some controversial people to you. It also included athletes like Jim Brown or uh, Muhammad Ali. Um, they had controversial ideas. Um, now, you know, that's a code word for you're a racist. That's the only thing that's controversial, uh, is when they don't really, they kind of, uh, you know, you're connected. It's like the black comedian who's on, um, on, um, Netflix. Oh, uh, Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Uh, he's controversial. That means he's homophobic. But yeah, whereas when he had his brilliant... He's still got a gig, yeah. so he's controversial. If if we cancel him, he's not controversial anymore. We don't have to talk about him anymore. Yeah, he's, 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 he's out to the cornfield, you know. Uh, but what's just funny, because his, what is it, early 2000s show, uh, Chappelle's show, I, I feel like was both controversial and kind of groundbreaking, the fact that there aren't a lot of comedy shows that kind of push the... Push the format forward. And I feel like that one did. I used to I used to uh, record stand up comedy, you know, parts, um, audio record uh, off the television, and I used to buy comedy records and listen to an overnight show where they it was a talk show from Chicago, and uh, they had uh, they had Second City talent come on in the guise of. Uh, you know, a fake interview with a psychiatrist or, you know, something like that. It was very oh, sure. funny. Yeah, yeah, and they yeah. would play comedy bits from albums. And, uh, but, you know, I, I don't know Chappelle. I don't know Louis C.K. I, I really lost, you know, I, I, I'm interested, but I really, I don't follow comedy like I used to. Well, but I don't know what these guys are doing, but I kind of recognize that, you know, Lenny Bruce went into politics as a stand-up, and he wasn't that funny towards the end. Same with Mort Saul. They kind of, you know, they kind of obsessed about political, yeah. the things that uh, they objected to, and they couldn't get around it. Just articulated I, I gather, points. yeah, exactly. It seems like maybe David Chappelle is uh, kind of going in that direction. It's been done before. It's happened to, you know, comedy people that they have tried to get serious, even Woody Allen, you know, in, in, in a film sense. Yeah, well, I, you're on to something because those are folks that just started articulating their viewpoints as their, as their act and, like, without any jokes. And the example I can think of that kind of works, and maybe it's because he was literally dying of liver cancer, but Bill Hicks, 
like the last album he did, he's definitely doing that, but it's also just viciously barbed, but like very funny. Like it does, it, it's still deeply hilarious, but deeply hilarious for someone that can appreciate really black humor. And I think that now that seems to be the model. Oh no, you know, since I've been canceled, yeah. I just want to talk about this. Like, let's talk about Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce was canceled. You know, it just it was yeah. before anybody yeah. knew what that that term meant. Oh, yeah, I mean, the feminists <laughs> will demand that uh, you agree that women have a sense of humor, uh, <laughs> and then you know, seem to prove the opposite. And uh, uh, you know, when you're grading things on you know political dogma, um, uh, you know. Humor, art, whatever you want to call it, you know, literature, a lot of that stuff is very carefully written. Um, it's going to suffer. And, of course, you know, I mean, there, you know, you, you kind of expect there's a base humanism in any art, even the Velvet Underground, even Lou Reed. <laughs> sure, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> but in a way, you know, in a way, you want some of these... Uh, uh, some of these people to be testing, you know, how little humanism you can get away with and still be interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, they, and they still invite, invite people in, you know, cause you, 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 obviously you can't, you, you can't repel people and uh, be a successful artist. Well, and it, and it speaks to a larger truth too, because there's been a balkanization with comedy, just as there has been with music. That's harder to have like a unique cultural experience shared by everybody, because everything's kind of divided yeah. up into these subdivided subcategories and subgenres, and we don't have that that unifying thing yeah. anymore. And yeah. if we do, it's a legacy act. It's it's an act that's been around for you know a long time that you know does something interesting or weird. And yeah, it's like you could you could for a while you could. Uh, you 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 know on one channel you'd see David Brenner doing uh you know classic uh, borscht belt uh, comedy uh written jokes one after another bang 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 and then you'd see Andy Kaufman or even um um Albert Brooks you know with these conceptual things and uh you know and they were great and you know those old variety shows on network television um, I think, you know, in a way they were booked more responsibly than, uh, MTV or, sure. you know, look at the decabit show, look at like the, all the, uh, risks the decabit show took, you know, like, he's... well, that's yeah. On, <laughs> on YouTube, you know, the cute, it seemed like when I was a kid, you had to wait a long time before you saw Steppenwolf or the who on the Smother Brothers show. Um, but on YouTube, you see just how much great stuff got sent out there on the networks to, you know, literally half the population of the country. There was no nothing else to watch, you know. Um, there were two or three choices. Right. And um, now there are two or three thousand. There's, not, there's no, nobody doing that good of a job anymore, even as hip as they all are. <laughs> you know, it's like they studied the bluffer's guide. They're really not hip. They just took on uh, a disguise. Yeah, and I, I would say that there are some... So there's some caveats and exceptions, as are with anything. Like, there there was a show, not around anymore, but it's got Chris Gethard that was on cable. It was, like, the first 
like talk show format, I think that like really seemed to push it to somewhere totally different. And I'm not talking about, there's a couple like absurdist, you know, uh, uh, ones oh, yeah. as well, yeah. like yeah. Uh, Andre. But you know, there's something keeping, say, even, you know, you're, that I can talk to you about film and comedy and music. Right. Um, something is keeping you on this podcast. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, exactly. And yeah. You would normally be on Milwaukee television and then be uh, in Manhattan. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Any anybody with <laughs> the knowledge that can't be faked. You know. Um, I don't. I don't. You know. I mean, it's a shame because you know uh, I do run into very knowledgeable people, and they're in some little niche that they've carved out, and I, you know, God bless them. You know, I. I I I wish you had a bigger audience, you know, based on just talking to you and listening how you who you're interested in is uh and and that's what I mean by the retardation of the culture that Jan Wenner and Lee Abrams and you know different people did. Right. They were the people who replaced Ed Sullivan and, you know, uh Lawrence Welk or you know whoever. Uh all the squares from the 60s who did such a good job uh you know, jazz was on Sunday morning on CBS in the early 60s. Um, uh, all kinds of stuff was on in the 50s. Uh, folk music and uh, blues music and uh, country music. Um, the hip people got a hold of everything and turned it into a inside game. And um, and we've been retarded ever since. You know, in, in a way... In a way, there's you know there's no hope when you when you really look at what they did, the, the you know now it's into volunteer hobbyists who are obsessives and there's no way for you, for you know us to share <laughs> to share it through the mass media. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you know you you bring up a couple good points as always that uh, I, you know I think there was a, a brief window in, in the early '90s where they hadn't quite figured it out and the freaks got kind of let yeah. in, and then yeah. they quickly figured it out, realized that okay we can package this, we can market our own like more controllable, safer alternative yeah. bands and whatnot, and then that was over, and then that was that was closed yeah. down, and I yeah. think that that's it took, happened. Uh, it, it took 15 years to educate the audience, you know. Systematic, rough trade, SST, Discord, you know, right. whoever was involved. Um, uh, and 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 they uh, re-retarded the audience in uh, a quarter of the time. Yeah, and, and they use right, and they, and they use the grooves uh, of, of like the grooves of the proverbial record that were created by the underground to do it, which is yeah, all the yeah. all the more insidious. Uh, that's an incredible downer. But also, I, I think that there is some, and and kind of maybe looking on the bright side of some of the things you're talking about. You know, speaking personally, the fact that yeah, like I, I you know, I I do this niche, I do this show, and it's you know, it's it's a niche audience full of niche guests for certain niches but the fact that there is the ability to connect with people worldwide worldwide yeah. with, without like you know a major broadcasting studio and you know million dollar budgets and all that that is pretty incredible it's not as incredible yeah. as yeah. all the tech people always boast about yeah. it being frankly but well, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the thing about youtube if you know what to ask it 
you can find, you can find anything. <laughs> incredible stuff. And you might have paid attention all through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and there's still stuff on there you never saw. Absolutely. You know? I saw a uh, – so <laughs> so Gang of Four, uh, there's there's some news this week that my uh, – uh, friend and musical compatriot Dave Paho of Slint is now taking the Andy Gill role of Gang of Four and they're going to be touring next year. And that's I think I saw that. Yeah, I, I met Dave Paho once. Yeah. He's he's the Dave's sweetest nice dude, guy. the greatest talent. Yeah. It's 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 just an amazing yeah. uh pairing of awesome things. And they're one of my favorite bands. But I found a live show of from like the Solid Gold era and I don't know and they have backup singers going and stuff, but it's still like <laughs> but it's still gang of four and like i had never seen this before and you got to understand joe like this is like one of my favorite bands i thought i had like searched out all the target videos all of the you know anything i could find and i was like how have i never seen this this is crazy did somebody just have this in a basement somewhere that's amazing i love that well there was just a um, a jethro tull 1969 french television clip uh that i you know i mean i'm not a big tall head but uh uh I, I like the um, the history of television production yeah. as well, yeah. and this they got from the original master, you know, which probably was a one inch videotape, and uh, very high quality and uh, uh, a live clip, and um, you know, it, it made me wonder about French television because they must have thought. You know, why did they make room for all these British bands in 69 to 73, maybe later? Um, Did they wonder, did they feel like, you know, why are we letting the British come in here and play American music? (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Can't we play rock and roll? I mean, you know, there was always a few French, (laughs) a few French bands, but it just, it's just odd that French and German television is, you know, is a great, uh, a resource for you know live clips of of American and British bands of that era. Yeah, and it's it's I, I find it astounding that there's so much of it that's like entered in this digital archive that you have to know how, you know where to look for it, and you know maybe it won't be there, maybe it won't. But I think that's like the good side of the internet. Uh, I think it's also yeah. training people to be insane, frankly. But you know whatever, that's neither here nor there, and that's a different. Yeah, discussion. I mean, I I draw the line at. Uh, I don't have a cell phone and I don't do Zoom or Skype. Yeah. Um, I I try to get off the computer. I, I love the laptop. I've never had a desktop and uh and it's so much better for writing than a typewriter. I used to hate the typewriter. Oh sure. And um and I wrote longhand until uh the invention of the uh laptop. And um do, do so you- I you know, I'm on it quite a bit, but I'm not online all the time. Right, right. So do you take it to, like, scenic locales or take it outside and, and, and write or anything along those lines? I know Centennial is uh, that. No. Uh, um... no, I don't. I, I go, I, I'm i in Centennial because I don't like, uh, you know, exercise. So I need a camera and uh, a place to hike where, you know, you're sort of on the hunt for an image, right? And I post uh, hike photos uh, online beautiful. when I'm, you know, in Wyoming anyway. Yeah, they're they're, they're uh, very that, beautiful. That, you know, so I can get a good uh, hour, two hour hike in and uh, uh, stay in shape. Uh, keep you know, keep from sitting all day. I, you know, I gave myself sciatica 
finish in stone mail because the last uh, three years out of a, whatever it was, 30-year project, I really sat down and did nothing but get the book written and rewritten and edited and, you know, and, uh, you know, it almost, uh, it almost uh, ruined my uh, ability to uh, stand and, and uh, move Oof. around for Yikes. a couple of months. <laughs> and so I, I have to be careful now, but, uh, yeah. That was a surprise because I'm, I'm generally, you know, I'm not in... I'm not in bad shape. I'm not in good shape. I just find exercise boring, but uh, as is. long as I can hike <laughs> or walk along the yeah. river when I'm in Illinois, it's, it's, um, I used to live in Monaco, so I, I know Wisconsin. I used to, we used to vacation up there and ski in, you know, and come up in the summer. And, uh, and so, you know, I do, I generally do enough outdoor activity, but no, I don't bring the computer with me. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so for some people that sounds like a dream. Some people like a nightmare. You know, it, it's figuring. Yeah, it out. I mean, if I if I build a new house and I have a, a a deck, then it's conceivable. You know, we only really got a wireless out here. You know, ten years ago, uh, I have a DSL, and uh, but now there is uh, a good cell service, so you could you could actually function without a without a landline out here now. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's, uh, I was, I was amazed one time spot was talking to someone on a cell phone because, you know, it just happened that eventually the service uh, got there. It worked <laughs> <Yeah. suddenly. laughs> out here in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Well, any, anyone that's toured knows that like, there's that, that, that stretch that's, uh, you know, like this was it the 70, right. That, that this is sort of, um, you're 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 lucky to find. No, I, I guess it'd be the eighty, huh? Uh, that you're just lucky to, to get any service at all. <laughs> like it's yeah. Like like the the counter on the cell phone says good luck. You know, for your number of bars. <laughs> well, yeah, black, you know, Black Flag started really the uh, you know the uh, uh, the DIY touring and um, and Chuck they had to pull over to pay phones. Yeah. You know, um, or at a gas station, he'd have to run to make a call ahead to book the last dates while they're, you know, out for uh, a month or two months. And um, uh, we uh, we work, they, when I came in to run the office, this was in September 81, uh, they were anticipating the Damaged album coming out and them being on the road forever. And so they had Henry in right. the band now, so his voice was strong. You know, it would it would never give out, and um, I was going to be there at the office, and and then Mike Shepard was supposed to be coming in at the same time to be the booking guy, so that Chuck didn't have to run to a payphone at every you know and, and at, at every road, stop yeah. <laughs> when he was trying to nail down the last dates or rearrange something or an emergency or you know we would ship uh, T-shirts ahead for them to sell. And uh, Mike Shepard never showed up because he owed me money. <laughs> From <laughs> I put down the down payment on Kizar Auditorium for his uh, Throbbing Gristle Flipper concert in oh, San okay. Francisco. Sure, and uh, and that was about six hundred and fifty bucks, and he had promised me a fifty percent um, 
you know, return on investment. And I think he thought he was going to make money at SST, and the first $900 was going to go to me. <laughs> how and funny. if you know Mike Shepard, you know that's exactly what he was, how he was thinking. That, that, that's, he was doing that uh, fight math, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he did the uh, iridescent label, and he did, uh, I don't know, the last thing he did, I think, was like a 26-volume uh, DVD box set of Cecil uh, Turner, I think. Is that his name? The the piano jazz guy. Um, the yeah, that's, that's, I think that's his name. Uh, you're talking about uh, you know, I don't, I, you know, I, the free jazz uh, pianist. Anyway, it's it just he 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 since died, but uh, I don't think he took care of his health very much, but. Uh, Mike Shepard had a crazy career in uh, the music business, that's for sure. Are you talking about uh, Joe Turner? No. No, no. Uh, Free Jazz. Free Jazz, okay. I don't know. (laughs) I I, I think it's Turner, but I'm no jazz. I don't like jazz. Wait, are you you talking about uh, 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 Cecil Taylor? That's it, yeah. Okay, oh my God, I can't believe I got that. Wow, this (laughs) is... There's maybe a 25 set. I don't know if it's CDs. I thought it was video. You know, I don't know how he could have done that many video performances. But anyway, anyway, uh, that's the last I heard of Mike Shepard until he died. But, um, <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Uh, uh, yeah, he was. He was one of these uh, LA characters, kind of uh, floating around, uh, looking for a, a new uh, money man to do. Uh, Another uh, inspired, uh, uh, but also uh, cockeyed project. <laughs> I mean, he did both Throbbing Gristle shows, the one in L.A. and the one in San Francisco. Yeah. And he did the Iridescent label, which was Sonic Youth. Um, uh, oh, uh, Death Valley 69, Death right? 69, yeah. yeah. Uh, 45 and uh, 45 I used to Grave, have I think, <laughs> and some other stuff. I, I don't, I'm, I'm missing... Uh, several middle chapters of his uh, career, but um, he was a character. So, Joe, two more things. Uh, it would be disingenuous of me. The Minutemen is one of my favorite bands of all time. One of my favorite episodes of the show, actually, is when I had Watt on, and, uh, mm. you know, I always love talking to that guy. Uh, Jesus yeah. and Tequila. Can you, yeah. as someone that, I believe I've heard you be on record as being not really a lyrics guy. Like you're, you're like that's not really like your yeah. thing, right? So can you explain? Not when I come to music, yeah. Can, okay, cool. So can you explain how uh, your involvement on that that very excellent song on Double Nickels on the Dime came to be? Well, uh, yeah. When when Black Flag toured most of '82 on Damaged, um, I was alone at SST, and so D Boone took the took. Uh, uh, took the uh, advantage to move into SST, which was fine by me, because uh, it gave me, uh, you know, another set of hands. And uh, and uh, um, but he would he would uh, I played the the country AM channel, you know, in the office during the day mostly, and um, and we got to talking about uh, country albums, and I I. You know, was semi semi jokingly said, "Well, let's let's uh, see if we can do a country uh, D Boone solo album." And so I started writing songs because I was interested in 
country music, uh, when I like a song, then I start paying attention to the lyrics to see if they're any good, you know, because you can understand them pretty easily. And uh, But mostly I listen for sound and mood and stuff, playing. Um, but I wrote three songs for D. Boone, and then uh, uh, Mike decided that, you know, Double Nickels should be a double album, you know. I don't know if they had a title for it before it was a double album. They probably did, because I think they'd started recording for the for their next album as a single idea. But they made it a double album, and so they put out a call for lyrics, and uh, and Dee said, well, I got some Carducci lyrics, and, um, and so um, the one song went into the double album. And uh, I had really only heard a practice cassette Dee Boone made, which was just him strumming his way through. Um, it bore no relation to the song that it became. Sure. So when I heard him play it live for the first time, I was kind of surprised. I, I always pictured it as having a uh, a slide guitar solo, um, bluesy, but uh, he he did something almost like classical Julian Bream or something. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting in counterpoint. Break. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I was just talking to Bill Stevenson about that song too because he he knew I wrote the lyrics and he he thought D rushed through the the rhyming scheme of Jesus and tequila, yeah. you know, he, he kind of sings it quickly. And I, you know, I, I told Bill when it, you know, I worked with Minutemen, St. Vitus and, uh, Angst and DC three, uh, you know, a few bands in the studio. Uh, and I never really, uh, had an opinion on singing. It just seemed too personal and especially in the punk era, you know, it didn't matter if you hit every note. It didn't matter if you, uh, you know, really felt it that time or if you were doing, uh, you know, a cold run through. I just left it to the singer, whether he was happy with his vo- vocals, whereas I would, you know, be listening to the drums and make sure we got the best drum take we could. And because um, you couldn't always get you know, a perfectly played rhythm uh, sure, track yeah. <laughs> uh, done. You could fix, you could fix the bass or, or a, a guitar flub, but the drums pretty much need to be nailed. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, it's, it is, uh, Anks did one of the other three that I wrote for D Boone and they never put on a record, but it was called, um, better to die. <laughs> And uh, it's a very good lyric, but uh, they did it live on a tour, and that was about it. <laughs> well, and then, never did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Well, it's the Minutemen started touring. They got busy. They couldn't. You know, there was no time for a D Boone solo album at that point. Yeah, you know, we we, we know that how that turned out, and that's one yeah, of the great yeah. Tragedies. It was a shame. He was, you know really uh, a nice easygoing friendly guy and uh he was all around a lot you know he was working with henry on uh, the gin's house for a while yeah. i mean he, he was up in hermosa quite a bit and uh i typically i would go to the minutemen gigs with d boone picking me up and then i would go back with mike watt because 
Watt would go home after the gig, and D. Boone would go out partying with whoever had the marijuana. <laughs> and uh, Mike was, you know, Mike was Mike, and I guess he 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 didn't want to uh, be hung over the next morning or something. I, you know, I'm not quite sure if he was still working in those years, but you know, but they'd be going up to Hollywood or somewhere to play the gig, and then uh, I would need to get up there from Hermosa Beach, and I'd need a ride back because I didn't do any driving, almost no driving while I was in L.A. at SSD. That's astounding. Wow. <laughs> That's, like, really impressive in its way. I counted on Mugger or the Minutemen or the Black Flag uh, van, or I would jump in uh, the, the Descendants van because they were really busy. So I saw them a lot in 1982 also, and... Uh, um, you know that that's I mean that's peak Descendants if you ask me. <laughs> what, uh, the Milo album came out. They were playing every weekend um, at some small bar, and there wasn't a big crowd of stage divers or anything like that. You just you were just watching uh, the original lineup go through. You know the the. Uh, the greatest record they ever did. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> and, still uh, still beloved it was to this like day. Almost pers- yeah. personal performance. You and maybe twenty other people. That's amazing. Uh, you know, in in eighty two, that's what it was like. So, uh, last thing I want to ask you, Joe, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time here. This is uh, this has been great. This this is a delight. Everything I wanted to be. Sure. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, Western stories. You know, you these are ostensibly, you know, Western screenplays. Is there anybody that you would say you would love to get this in the hands of like i'm thinking of uh you know the, the last really great western i think i saw was uh, that australian one the proposition uh john hillcoat did i like i like that one quite a bit uh which one uh the proposition it came out like about 15 years ago somewhere oh i never saw it but yeah i do know what very good you're talking about very good i think and i think well i i think uh after clint eastwood i think uh uh taylor sheridan is doing the best you know the best work with a Western sensibility, even if he hasn't done quite yet a, uh, you know, a period Western. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I guess he's doing the pre-show to the Yellowstone or the prequel to Yellowstone. And uh, that'll be a, a period Western. Oh, cool. Okay. Neat. So, so I guess, yeah, what I was, what I was just driving as, I mean, I think anytime you read a screenplay, like, wow. Who should be directing this this film? So would would you have would would that be a would that be a Taylor Sheridan get in touch kind of situation? Or is there anyone you have in mind or anything? <laughs> well, unfortunately, he's a writer. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, maybe he prefers directing and producing. So um, well, know, he did uh, what? Those who it, wish me dead. That came out. Uh, the Angelina Jolie vehicle came out recently. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that. Um, another one he did a few years had, ago. I can't remember what it. It's like a it's like a murder mystery. Uh, yeah, like I mean, Renner, I just I, I saw something about that and looked at it, and uh, that was news to me. I I don't know much about that project. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, I have some friends who direct, and uh, uh, maybe the Naomi Peterson screenplay has the best shot. You know, I I have a feeling uh, um, her story. Um, you know, as a, uh, a mixed race female photographer at yeah. SST who then moves to the East Coast and, uh, <clears throat> you know, works at Ross Records, the reggae label, and, um, you know, shoots um, 
the DC bands uh, on Discord and and um, Winos bands and stuff. It's a fascinating story. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's a good. It's uh, like I say, it's a long screenplay about a short life, and uh, yeah. Yeah. it's very sad. And I don't know if people, you know, people uh, in Hollywood producers. I, I don't know. I don't know where they are on the subject of uh, the kind of bleak endings that um, uh, people made in the 70s. And uh, I came of age in the 70s. I like that. You know, I like that note yeah. as a final note. is something uh, existential and, uh, and, um, and uh, uh, you know, a blue note. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, and I think some of my favorite films of the of the past few years have have started to have that kind of reminiscent of the oh wow that's the end oh geez okay kind of moments which yeah. I, I I I too like that quite a bit so I think there's kind yeah, of I like mean, it's I'm, not I'm Vogue, optimistic but. because of streaming you know the the level of production of B movies is way up and the B movie is is not necessarily. Uh, uh, you know, a, a big tit action movie uh, like they used to be. There's there's a little bit more ambition to them, and um, uh, and more of those are getting made for whether it's Amazon or Netflix or yeah. Apple a- a- or a million other places. I mean, I don't. There's got to be a place for my stuff. I just, I in a way, I can't spend too much bother on that. I have to keep writing. <laughs> Sure, sure. No, it's understandable. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I yeah. wish I had writer's block. <laughs> well, I, I have the opposite. Problem. Right, 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 right. Uh, well, and I think that there's, you know, again, there, there's the, the whole A twenty four world. Like, you know, the fact that a movie like Uncut Gems, granted, it starred Adam Sandler, but that's a, you know, that is not a movie. I don't know that one. Oh, I, it's, yeah. I is it what kind of movie is it? Uh, stress inducing is probably the best way that I, that I could put it. Uh, he's this, yeah. he's this basically, um, so it's ostensibly like a, a, a I guess you would call it a crime thriller about like a, a jeweler and reseller who's just, um, yeah. he's making these high stakes bets and it's like a high wire act of who he owes money to and who he's trying to get money from and oh, this and that. Yeah, and yeah. it's just a nonstop well, you know, ride of stress. people want to do great. good work. You know, it's almost like we were describing uh, um, rock writers at war with their editor publishers. Yeah. Um, the people in Hollywood want to do good work, but um, they're second guest at every step. That's and true. Uh, in the end, some money person is uh, is deciding to play it safe <laughs> yeah. on some level. Well, I'll tell you and, what. Um, I mean, know. Joe, some people that are in quote unquote the industry listen to this show and other people know people that are in the industry listen to this show. So I'm not promising anything, but you know, hey, <laughs> fires have been yeah. started with less, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, my my fantasy is people read my scripts and uh they get depressed because they're too good to be made. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, uh, Joe. But anyway, I, I keep writing them. You know, I I, I really uh, love the form because you don't have to describe everything. You know, yeah. the the camera tells people what a farm looks like. You don't you don't need to describe all that anymore. Yeah, and that's that's and, uh, the key to the the form, right? That's the key to the format. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's uh, uh, it's a further step of 
of modern literature, modernism as a style, is uh, the screenplay, if, if you ask me. I mean, I've thought, well, should I be writing novels and sell the rights into Hollywood? Um, why? <laughs> why would I do that? Um, uh, I, I uh, settled on this format, and I like it, and so I'm doing it. And, uh, you know, I've got the nonfiction books, so every once in a while I have enough scripts uh, that make a kind of thematic, uh, uh, they fit together on, under a co- in you know, in between a cover of a book. So, um, you know, it's, it's fun to do it, and, uh, and uh, there's a little bit of uh, cash flow from the books. It's like a miniature SST in a way uh, that I don't have to... I don't have to second guess anything really, and um, and frankly, even if you say went to Rutledge or uh, Hachette uh, with the Stone Mail, you know, write a book about action movie acting, <clears throat> you know, put it in as good a pitch as you could. Um, you couldn't, in the middle of the book, do a hundred pages on Soviet cinema as the other working class cinema oh my God. Uh, to compare it to. Yeah. You just couldn't get away with it. Uh, they'd put it into two books if you were lucky, uh, but it makes sense as one book because if you write a, about a subject and you don't compare it to anything, I mean, that's the question of, of life is compared to what, you know? Not in this- <laughs> I was thinking about Marcus Garvey. Sure. If we're, yeah. if we're, uh, this, if we're as racist as we appear to be, from the news media, uh, Marcus Garvey would have gotten all the black people to move back to Africa, you know, a century ago or more. Um, he had oh, he had virtually no takers, and that and that and life was so bad back then for a black man or a black woman. Um, you know, it just uh, compared to what? Yeah, that's always the question Joe this has been so so great and uh, again folks should go to Night Heron Books uh, read out press uh, and and purchase the western stories uh, or you know you can get uh, Rock and the Pop Narcotic you can get any of the other ones as well they're, they're all good uh, yeah, read uh, read Enter Naomi before the movie is made. Right, exactly. <laughs> get get it get in before you know before the uh, before it's in the pop culture. But yeah, thanks. Is. I'll I'll definitely be uh, looking deeper into your catalog. I want to hear uh, hear your Mike Watt interview for sure. Uh, last thing, and it's something I ask everybody. It, it's an open open ended question. You can choose to interpret it however you like. But why do you do what you do? Well, I was talking to Bill Stevenson two days ago, and uh, I just explained to him which, what, it, what didn't need explaining, which is there's no plan B. You know, uh, I happen to have uh, felt like this is, uh, you know, the best use of my uh, skills, talents, gifts, whatever you call it. I, I enjoyed being in the record business to watch other artists um, you know, bring their art to uh, fruition, and I figured I could I could learn how to write in ten years while doing that in the music business, and it would benefit me. And I don't know if it benefited me that much, but it it really was fun. <laughs> so 
uh, a good a good way to spend your 20s. But there's no plan B. I mean, I'm a writer. Love it. Joe Carducci, thank you so much, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Conan. Great talking to you. All right, take care, brother. Bye-bye. Ah, uh, there he goes! There he goes! Joe Carducci. What a cool guy. Let's listen to some Jesus and tequila. And a girl Love what you saw Love me so good Made your daddy Tequila. That's a that's a hell of a song. That is, as mentioned, Mr. Joe Carducci writing the lyrics on that excellent, 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 excellent Minutemen tune. Is this thing on? Once again, go get his stuff. Uh, Nightheronbooks.com, Readout Press, Western Stories, Stone Mail, Rock and Pop Narcotic, Inner Naomi, so on and so on. Uh, interesting fellow, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we could have done that for another three hours, but we gotta save something for next time, huh? Um, hope you guys enjoyed that. I thought that was that, that was a uh, that was a darn good time.
from my perspective. The name of this show is Kona Neutron's Protonic Reversal. Thank you very much for listening to it. This has been episode 271. Quarantine's edition, Sunday. If you like the show, protonicreversal.com for the archives. Always free. No ads, no sponsors, no kidding. But if you want to get episodes sooner, $1 a month. Patreon.com slash protonicreversal will achieve that goal. Help support the show. And that's always, that's always appreciated. Mr. and Mrs. America... Shows on all the various social medias Instagram, Facebook, all that. Twitter is just me, but whatever. Who cares about that? I've got <laughs> YouTube. If uh, uh, which is woefully behind at this point, but yeah, you can you can subscribe to on YouTube when there's. When there is a video, it's there. So like and subscribe on that, share it around. Thanks for everybody that does that already. That's uh, that's awesome of you. Thank you for doing that. It helps people find the show. As absurd as it is. So anyway, good stuff coming up. Stay safe out there. Out on Route 128, dark and lonely. Take it easy. I got my radio on. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? to my top 10. I'd like to thank our sponsor. But we haven't got a sponsor. Not if you were the last man on earth. She was prepared to prove it. This one goes out to a special girl. There is no special girl! 
last announcer plays the last record. The last what? Leaves the transmitter. Circles the globe in search of a listener. Can you hear me now? if there's no one there to receive. It's the end of radio. As we come to the close of our broadcast day, 